You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 18. We're going to read together verses 33 through the end of chapter 18. Verse 33, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, it is our earnest desire that we understand your word and that we are able to comprehend the, the meaning and the intention of the Spirit of God in this text. May that be the, the clear point of all that is said from this pulpit this morning. And may that be the clear point that settles in our hearts and in our minds as a result of our study together. Be honored and glorified through our time and through our study. And send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Pontius Pilate, his name is notable in history for one reason and one reason only. It was because he had the unfortunate distinction of being the Roman ruler in Judea when Jesus was handed over to the Romans to be crucified. If it were not for the fact that Pilate is the one who issued the, the final death sentence upon Jesus Christ, his name would be as lost to history as the four Roman rulers who ruled in Judea before him and all the Roman rulers who ruled in Judea after him. He would be basically unknown to us. But the name Pontius Pilate is, is notable to us and it is synonymous in history with uh, that of being a coward and uh, a feckless, gutless, spineless man who did what was politically expedient instead of doing what is right. Now, gutless and spineless leaders are a dime a dozen, but Pilate's cowardice gained him a notoriety that money cannot buy. Because he was the one who turned over the innocent Jesus of Nazareth and allowed the Jews to demand Barabbas, and he handed Jesus over to be crucified, for that reason, for that reason, Pilate is notable in history, and he is, he is enshrined, as it were, as the one who is, bears a lot of guilt for what happened uh, to Jesus Christ. He is even in the creeds. His name is even mentioned in the creeds. Some of our creeds say concerning Jesus that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And that's what Pilate is most notable for. Uh, Pilate is a coward. Pilate was a coward. And Pilate found himself in a situation where he wanted to release Jesus, but he was forced to do what was politically expedient, what was best for himself in that situation, fearing a riot from the people and fearing that the Jewish religious leaders would stir up the people against him, Pilate ended up turning an innocent man over to be crucified when he knew that Jesus was an innocent man. 
And uh, that brings us to the end of chapter 18. And we're looking today at these final closing verses in chapter 18, where the cowardice of Pilate is really on display for us in stark color and contrast. Uh, we finished up with the end of verse or the beginning of verse 38 last week when Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And you have to say it like that. What is truth? Because that's the attitude behind Pilate's uh, questioning. It was a skepticism and a cynicism and a way of dismissing Jesus and his case and his claims about being the one who is the truth and about having truth. It was Pilate's way of sort of pushing that off and turning on to other things. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but he couldn't find a way to do it. And after uh, dismissing Jesus and his case at the beginning of verse 38, Pilate sought to find another way of getting Jesus released, and that was to offer to the crowds Jesus as a released prisoner on Pente- uh, at uh, Passover as part of what was their custom. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, is uh, the innocence of Jesus Christ. It is on display, it's proclaimed by Pilate, and then it is exchanged for an, a guilty man. The innocence of Christ is proclaimed by Pilate, and then that innocent man is exchanged for a guilty one at the end of chapter 18. As we've worked our way through this, these chapters, uh, John 18, I guess I should say, as we've been working our way through John 18, we have gone back into some of the other Gospels and pulled in details and chronology and some of the, the things that they tell us about what was going on in order to put together a chronology and sort of a harmony of the Gospels. We're going to be doing that again today because there are a lot of details that are given by some of the other Gospel writers that fit into the middle of verse 38. And I mentioned several weeks ago that there is... There is something that happens in the middle of verse 38 that John doesn't mention. And he's not trying to keep it hidden from us. He's not trying to be dishonest. John, just for whatever reason, did not see the significance of recording those events, but instead he focused on something else. And in the trial before Pilate, John records that in chapter 18, verse 28, all the way through chapter 19, verse 16. And he gives more detail regarding the trial before Pilate than any of the other gospel writers do. But there is one trial, a fourth trial out of the five trials, that John does not mention, and it fits in the middle of verses 38 and 39. We've looked at three of the trials, and I'm going to ask you to turn back to Luke chapter 23 to look quickly at the fourth trial. And I don't want to go out of John for too long, but we do want to take in what happened in verses 38 and 39. Now, before you do, well, some of you are already on your way, so continue on your way to Luke. In chapter 18, this is how John records it. The conversation with Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers yes to that, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then he moves right into the proposal to exchange uh, Jesus or to release Jesus as a guilty prisoner to the crowd, and they demand Barabbas. Now, according to the Gospel of Luke, there is something that happens between the conversation regarding being the king of the Jews and the conversation regarding Barabbas, and that is the trial before Herod. Now, we've looked at the trial before Annas, the trial before Caiaphas, we've looked at the first round of trial before Pilate. Now, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and then Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. So, Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate again. And we have to fit in this trial that Luke tells us about in Luke 23, in verses 38 and 39, because that's where it would fall. John, like I say, just kind of skips over it. Um, again, not trying to deceive us, but just not mentioning it. He, he kind of keeps the whole the whole detail of everything that happened before Pilate together for us. But because of what we read in Luke, we know that there's another trial here. I just want to familiarize ourselves with this trial so that we, we know where it fits in. And by the way, Luke is the only one that mentions the trial before Herod. He's the only one that mentions it. John is the only one that mentions the trial before Annas, and all the Gospel writers mention the other ones. But Luke is the only one that mentions the trial before Herod. So verse 6, 
When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Speaking of Jesus, whether Jesus was a Galilean. We're in Luke 23, verse 6. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was, a very, was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at, at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Now, notice in verses 13, actually, if you look down at verse 17, you'll notice that that is when Luke records the um, Pilate trying to get Jesus released by offering to release a prisoner. Verse 16, therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner, but they cried out all together, saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. And so that is there. Uh, that happens after the trial with Herod. Now, if you go back to John, John just goes from the conversation about the king of the Jews, which Luke records in verses three, four, five, and uh, moves right into the uh, uh, the conversation about Barabbas. But there's a trial in here, this trial with Herod. So we'll look at the trial with Herod just briefly. In verse six, Pilate found out that Jesus was a Galilean. Now, Galilee was in the northern regions of the nation of Israel, and there was a tetrarch, a ruler over the northern part of the kingdom of the nation. And that was Herod. And this is not Herod the Great. This is the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. And he ruled in Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., meaning that he was the ruler over Galilee for the whole life of Jesus. Now, Herod's Herod's palace, his capital city in the north, was not very far from Jesus' ministry headquarters, which was Capernaum. And in Capernaum, Jesus did more miracles in the city of Capernaum than probably any other single city in the nation of Israel. And so Herod Antipas was not very far away from Jesus and from Jesus' headquarters. And he could have, had Herod wanted to, he could have gone and interviewed Jesus at any time. But he never did. He had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the miracles and the teachings. And he was wanting to meet Jesus at some point. But Herod found himself in Jerusalem at this time, providentially. And why do you think Herod would have been in Jerusalem at the Passover? Probably to celebrate the Passover. Now, Herod was not a devout religious person, certainly not a devoutly religious Jew, but Herod would have seen a political benefit of going to Jerusalem and being there for the Passover because many of the people from the north would have gone down. And if Herod could be seen in the temple and in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, this would earn him some political capital. It would appease and sort of please the people over which he ruled. So that's probably why he was in Jerusalem during the Passover. Well, when Pilate found out that Herod was, uh, that Jesus was a Galilean, in other words, that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, Pilate wanted to send Jesus to Herod. Now, it was customary under Roman law that if you committed a crime in somebody else's jurisdiction, that typically the trial would be held in the jurisdiction or in the place where you committed the crime and you were charged. But there were circumstances when Roman rulers would defer to the one, the ruler from whose jurisdiction this person came. And that's likely what Pilate is doing. Pilate sees here the opportunity to do two things. To gain a little favor with Herod, and to get rid of this case that he does not want to deal with, which is Jesus. That's why Pilate sent him to, or yeah, that's why Pilate sent him to Herod. This would have been, because we find out in verse uh, 12, that Herod and Pilate were enemies until this time. So Pilate is probably doing two things, extending an olive branch, as it were. This would have been a very courteous thing for Pilate to defer the case to Herod. For Pilate to say, look, I have somebody from your jurisdiction. He's really your man. Uh, I don't want to execute him. I don't want to turn him over and to have somebody that's one of your people 
killed by my people. I'm just going to give him to you. I mean, at, passing him off to Herod would have been a, a way of sort of building bridges and, and a nice, gracious, deferential thing to do. But it also would have put Jesus in Herod's court instead of Pilate's. And ultimately, that's what Pilate wanted. He did not want this case. He did not want to issue a verdict. He didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus from the very beginning. He wants Jesus out of his hair, as it were, and this is a way for him to do that. And think of it this way. If Herod had said, all right, I'll take him, I'll kill him, I'll crucify him, then Pilate could have said, fine, it's not not on my hands, not on my head. I don't have to deal with it. That's your business, not my business. He's not my person. That's your jurisdiction. You deal with it. And Pilate could kind of wash his hands of the whole thing. At least he'd be rid of Jesus. Or if Herod said, I find no guilt in him, I'm going to release him. And to release Jesus and take him back to Galilee, do you think that Pilate would have cared about that? No, Pilate then could have gone to his people and said, look, I let Herod take a look at him. Herod released him. He usurped the authority over me. My hands were tied. We're just, we're tr- better luck next time. We'll try it again some other time. However this would work out, whether Herod condemned him or released him, Pilate was fine with that. The one thing Pilate did not want was Herod sending Jesus back to Pilate. That ends up being the very one thing that Herod ended up doing. Look at verse 8. Now Herod was a very glad, was very glad, there's no A there. Now, when Herod, now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Now, for Herod, Jesus was nothing more than a curiosity. He had heard of the signs. He had wanted to see Jesus for some time. And why did Herod want to interview him? Just because he was hoping that Jesus would perform some trick, some sign, perform some miracle for him. That's what Herod wanted. He wanted to be entertained. He wanted to be wowed. He wanted to show in front of him. And so he was willing to give Jesus the hearing. And so Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Herod was interested in this and, and gladly gave Jesus the hearing. And it says in verse 9, that he questioned him at some length. He kept asking him questions, but he answered him nothing, meaning Jesus answered Herod nothing. Interestingly, Herod is the only one of these rulers, and this is the only trial where Jesus said absolutely nothing. Before Annas, remember, he charged Annas with the illegality of the proceedings, and he confronted Annas with that. Before Caiaphas, he affirmed that he was the Son of God and he would come back in clouds of glory. Jesus spoke to Caiaphas. Before Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world, and everyone who hears the truth it was of the truth, here's my voice, and talk to Pilate about the truth. Before Herod, he said absolutely nothing. Jesus was not interested in saying anything. He had nothing to say to somebody who was not a genuine seeker, who was not interested in truth, and whose only desire was to be entertained. Jesus said nothing to him. Answered him not a word. But also at that trial were a bunch of people, chief priests, who wanted to see Jesus condemned. Obviously, verse 10, and the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently, saying all kinds of hostile things. Now, you can imagine that before Herod, who who could have released Jesus if he had wanted to or if he had desired to, Herod could have done that. Before Herod, these chief priests would have showed up with all of their accusations and probably unloaded the apple cart of everything that they had. He claims to be the Son of God. They would have they made all kinds of vehement and despair despicable accusations against Jesus. These chief priests did not want to take the chance that Herod would release him. And so when Jesus went from Pilate to Herod, they were right along on his coattails, chasing him there, making sure that that Herod understood what the accusations were and how serious the charges were. And so they were there accusing him vehemently. And Jesus said absolutely nothing. Verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, 
and sent him back to Pilate. Herod, the gorgeous robe, according to one commentator, said this was probably one of Herod's cast-off robes, something he was done with. It was one, would have been one of his royal garments, but probably one that was in the bag to go to goodwill. And so they drug that out and they put it on Jesus. And the fact that they did this was just evidence that they did not consider the claim that he was the king of, Jews, uh, king of the Jews as being anything legitimate. Their only desire, Herod's only intention here, is to mock Jesus. And so in dressing him in the royal robe, he is, he is kind of granting the premise, okay, you're the king of the Jews. So they dress him up and they begin to mock him and, 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 and treat him with contempt. I will bet you that Herod has thought of this day a thousand times since he died. More than a thousand times since he died. Here's the one who is the truth, standing before him, and all he can think to do is dress him up and mock him and treat him with vehemence and contempt. Verse 12. Now Herod and, uh, uh, now Herod and Pilate, sorry, verse 11, treated him with contempt, dressed him up in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So when Jesus arrived back at Pilate, he was dressed in Herod's robe. Verse 12, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for they had been enemies with each other. It's amazing how the hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ makes such strange bedfellows, isn't it? These men had been enemies up until this time, but all of a sudden, they have one enemy in common. One person in common, Jesus, and they both hate him. They both are not interested in him. They both think he's a mockery. And so they begin to jointly mock him and ridicule him, and they became friends that day. You will see this happening around you. If you open up your eyes, you'll see it constantly. Groups that are normally would be at war with each other and on opposite sides of an issue will find themselves uniting to fight against the light and the truth. Right? I just talked about this actually with somebody yesterday. Why is it that Hollywood constantly defends Islam, radical Islam and terrorists? Why do they do that? Do they not understand that if Islam had its way, they would burn every television studio and every television set in this nation? And they would execute every last individual who has ever done anything immoral on a screen or on a television set. Do they not understand that that's what Islam would do? It's exactly what they would do. So why is it that they are on the same side, as it were? Because they have a common enemy, isn't it? Hatred for Jesus Christ makes the strangest of bedfellows. And so it is here with Herod and Pilate. Now they're buddies. See, here's Jesus bringing people together again, like he does. All of them coming together in united hatred against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after this is when we read in Luke that uh, Pilate came out and began to bargain with them trying to release the prisoner. So go back now to John chapter 18, and we'll pick up the story there. That is the trial before Herod. So we've looked at the Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, now Herod, and now we are back to round two, Jesus before Pilate again. So you'll notice that in chapter 18, verse 33 to 38 is the discussion, are you the king of the Jews? And then verses 39 and 40 is Pilate seeking to release Jesus and them demanding Barabbas. In between those two events was this trial before Herod. And John doesn't mention that, but Jesus went to Herod and now came back to Pilate, dressed in the royal gorgeous robe, and we pick it up in verse 38. We're going to look, first of all, at Jesus' innocence proclaimed. Now, Pilate had tried to, remember, rid himself of the case. And everything that he has done so far is an attempt to rid himself of this case and to get Jesus out of his hair, out of his jurisdiction, because he didn't want to deal with this. When the Jews came to him, he initially asked them, what charge do you bring against this man? Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, we don't have any charge. They really didn't. And so they fumbled and finally said, well, if he weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. And I think that demanding a charge was the first way that Pilate was hoping to find a release for Jesus and get him out of there. The second time was when Pilate then turned around and said, then go try him according to your own law. Again, try to push him back onto the Jews. 
And that didn't work. According to our law, we can't, or we're not permitted, they said, to put anybody to death. And they weren't under Roman law. And that was the second time that, they, that Pilate tried to secure the release of Jesus. Now, the third one was sending him away to, to Herod. And the very last thing that Pilate wanted to see was Jesus returning back to him from Herod. And that's what happened. And now Pilate issues his verdict in verse 38. His verdict, when he said to the Jews, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. That's Pilate's verdict. I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate never backed down from this statement. With all the pressure that the Jews brought against Pilate, Pilate never once relented from this statement. That he is not worthy of death. I find no guilt in him. That he is an innocent man. In everything that Pilate said, he maintained the innocence of Jesus. That he, all of the charges were false. This was Pilate saying, I have found him that he is no threat to Rome. Look, Rome does not fear kings of other worlds. Rome doesn't fear kings from other worlds and other realms. He calls himself a king, and Pilate has looked at the evidence. There's no servants. There's no armed soldiers. There's no armed resistance. There's no servants fighting for his release. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't talk like a king who is a threat to, to Caesar. There's nothing about Jesus that was a threat to Caesar or to Rome's authority or power. So I find no threat. I, have, I find nothing, no guilt in this man. He is innocent of it. And that was Pilate's declaration all the way through. And he never relented from this. And all the synoptic gospels record this. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all go to great lengths to tell us that this was Pilate's, um, this was Pilate's verdict. And not only that, but that Pilate said it over and over and over and over again. Let me read you a couple passages. Luke 23, 14 and 15. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So this is Pilate's verdict. Not only have I found no guilt in him, Herod has found no guilt in him, and now he is coming back to us. Nothing deserving of death has been done by this man. Matthew chapter 27, verse 23. Pilate asked, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Mark 15, 14. Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Luke 23, verse 22, and he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. And look how John records two other statements from Pilate's lips. Down in chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. Look at verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. So three times Pilate said this to the Jews. This conversation between the Jews and Pilate, between the religious leaders and Pilate, went on for quite some time. And Pilate reiterated over and over again to them, he's innocent. He is innocent. He is innocent. And yet they demanded the blood of an innocent man. Pilate knew he was innocent. But Pilate didn't release him. Pilate could have released him. But Pilate feared a riot. In fact, that's what Matthew says. Eventually, in this whole conversation the crowds began shouting with one voice and even louder. And Pilate feared that there would be or he would have a riot on his hands. And so finally, he came in and he washed his hands and he said, his blood, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the Jews said, his blood be on us and on our children. And Pilate walked away from it and handed him over to be crucified, knowing all the time that he was an innocent man. But Pilate lacked the courage to do what was right. Instead, he did what was expedient. He did what was expedient. Now, Pilate's declaration, I find no guilt in him, 
is somewhat symbolic and somewhat significant given the day upon which this happened. Do you remember the day that it was when this happened? It was Passover. What happened on Passover? On Passover, the Jews would bring their lamb into the temple to the priest, and the priest would examine the lamb to make sure that the lamb was spotless and blameless. And if the lamb was spotless and blameless, it would be handed over to be killed and to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. Here is Pilate on the day of the Passover saying, I find no guilt in this man. In other words, this one standing before you is spotless and blameless. Now, John has already told us back in chapter 1 and chapter 3 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we know that Christ is our Passover Lamb, and He was sacrificed for us. And here is Pilate's declaration that this one is an innocent man. That's the connection with the Passover. Three times Pilate made that declaration that he was an innocent man. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter writes, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your fetal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and following, Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins and His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's the Passover connection. And that is, is in essence, the, the central element of the gospel, is it not? It is because he is innocent that he could pay our price. It is because he knew no sin and did no sin and had no sin. It is because he is the spotless Lamb of God that he could pay the price for guilty sinners. This was necessary that his innocence be vindicated before men. Having been examined and falsely accused, he is pronounced innocent and blameless, spotless, morally perfect, as it were, and then sent off to the slaughter as the Passover lamb. So that is his innocence proclaimed by Pilate. Now I want you to notice his innocence exchanged. This is in verses 39 and 40. It's interesting that John only gives two verses to this incident with Barabbas. You'll notice how short this is. Uh, verse 39, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And then chapter 19, verse 1, just Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and, and off he goes. There's not very much detail regarding the interaction over Barabbas, is it? Especially when you consider that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one gives nearly ten verses to this exchange uh, over Barabbas. And if you're interested in those passages, I'll give them to you. Beginning in Matthew 27, 15, Mark 15, verse 6, and Luke 23, verse 16. Those are the three passages. All four of the Gospel writers record this, but John gives very little detail. I think because he knows and he is aware that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give a tremendous amount of detail regarding what happened with Barabbas. And so John just mentions it, reminds us of it, and moves on to uh, the rest of what happened with the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus, which starts in chapter 19, verse 1. So we want to take a look at this exchange, how Jesus is exchanged for Barabbas. Look at verse 19, or 39, sorry, verse 39. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Now concerning this custom, we have no idea what it was. We have no idea how it functioned. We have no idea when it began. We have no idea why it began. We have no idea what the whole purpose of it was or anything. All we do know is that all four Gospels record that the Jews had this custom. That on feast days, and particularly at the Passover, they would petition Pilate to release to them some prisoner. 
Now, this may seem odd to us that you would gather around and celebrate some event and then have a guilty person released to you and that you would think this is part of the celebration, right? That is odd to us. But consider this, that usually just prior to an inauguration of a brand new president, our president grants clemency and a free slate and pardons a whole bunch of guilty people, right? So we can at least somewhat understand that people in power have the ability to do this and Pilate did this and it was sort of a custom that they had. Nobody outside of the New Testament and no other place in history do we read anything about this custom, but we know that it was a custom. And likely, the first century readers of the Gospels would have understood exactly what the Gospel writers were referring to. But we have been removed historically enough from it that we have no idea what's being described here. Other than this, that the crowd gathered outside of Pilate's praetorium, Matthew 27, I think it's verse 18, says that, that by this time there had been a crowd that had gathered outside of Pilate's praetorium, and they began to request that this happen, and this was part of the custom. And so Pilate sees in this custom an opportunity to do something, to let an innocent man go. And that's what he is asking the Jews for. You have this custom, so here is the custom, and this is Pilate's idea now. He has tried he has tried miserably and failed miserably with every attempt to get Jesus released. And Luke says that Pilate was trying to get Jesus released. That was what he was attempting to do. Now, it's odd to us, and it should be odd to us, that Pilate would be trying to do this, since Pilate obviously had to authorize the arrest of Jesus, right? Because you can't take Roman soldiers and go to the garden and arrest somebody and bring them into the city of Jerusalem without Pilate's uh, consent. No cohort of Roman soldiers would have been released to arrest Jesus without Pilate's consent. So Pilate had consented to that. But something happened during the night that changed Pilate's mind. What was it? Pilate's wife had had a dream and had warned Pilate about that. Pilate likely had heard that Jesus offered no resistance whatsoever to the arrest. And not only that, but when Peter tried to resist, Jesus rebuked Peter and told him to put away his sword. And then Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Pilate would have been privy to all of this information since his soldiers were eyewitnesses to all of this. And on top of that, Pilate knew that the Jews had turned Jesus over to him because of envy. And now they have brought these spurious, stupid charges about him being an insurrectionist, feigning concern for Rome. Pilate, by this time, is convinced that Jesus is an innocent man and that he should have never been arrested. And now Pilate is trying to get him released. And so this custom that the Jews had is, serves as a perfect opportunity for Pilate to do just that. So he asks them in verse 39, Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Interesting that he would use that phrase, king of the Jews. What was Pilate trying to do? By using the phrase king of the Jews, Pilate is trying to garner and curry the favor of the crowd. See, this crowd would have loved to have somebody lead a revolt for them. They would have loved it. And Pilate knows that some of these same people just less than a week earlier had sang praises to this very person as he came into the city of Jerusalem. And so when Pilate doesn't say, should I release to you Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Galilean, but should I release to you your king, the king of the Jews? And it seems to be an attempt to get the, the crowd on his side to demand that, yes, release to us our king. This is the one that we sang praises to five days ago. And so Pilate is presenting him as the king, hoping that the crowd would be somewhat sympathetic to that and call for his release. But it ends up that this whole thing backfired. Now, what Pilate's trying to do is strike a bargain with the Jewish religious leaders and with the crowd. If they, had, if they had taken the bait and requested that Jesus be released, everybody would have been happy. And here's why. Because in order to release Jesus, Pilate would have first had to condemn him as guilty and admit that he was guilty. So he would have issued the verdict that Jesus was guilty of the crimes that he has been charged with. And then he would have turned around and released him to them because you don't release non-guilty prisoners. You only release what? The guilty prisoners. 
So in condemning Jesus as guilty, Pilate would have appeased the religious leaders because then they could have said, see, he's a criminal, he's a convicted criminal and a guilty criminal, don't listen to him. And they could have had a mark upon his character and his reputation that would have been permanent, and that might have been enough to satisfy them, at least Pilate is thinking. So that would have made them happy. In releasing Jesus, it would have made Pilate and the crowd happy, and everybody's happy. Now see, Jesus has brought Pilate and Herod together, and here's an opportunity for all of us to go home today, and all of us to be happy about how this has come out. All of us get a little bit of what we wanted. Pilate gets to release a, uh, an innocent man. The Jews get to slander somebody that they say is guilty. And the crowd gets their king of the Jews and everybody could be happy. But the whole thing backfired. The whole thing backfired when the people demanded that Pilate release to them Barabbas instead of Jesus. Now, Barabbas was not an innocent man. Barabbas, John says in verse 40, was a robber. So when he said to them, "Do you want? shall I release for you the king of the Jews, the, that backfired in that the crowd demanded that Pilate released Jesus instead. Now, there's a lot of interaction and back and forth that go, went on here. I read Luke earlier. Let me read to you Matthew's account in Matthew 27. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, I'm reading you Matthew's account because I want you to listen for something. How twice Pilate tried to get him released. And twice the people demanded that he crucify Jesus and release Barabbas. Because John says in verse, 30, uh, verse 40, so they cried out again, John says they cried out again, but John doesn't tell us when they cried out the first time. You've got to go to the other Gospels to recognize that John is obviously uh, uh, indicating to us that there was multiple times that Pilate was going down this route and they kept demanding Jesus instead, or Barabbas instead. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For they knew that because of, he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, I have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, on more than one occasion, on more than one attempt was made by Pilate to get Jesus released to the people. But they demanded Barabbas. Now, what is it? What was it about that crowd that caused them to demand the release of a notorious prisoner? And to instead send to crucifixion what everybody knew to be a righteous man, even one who was proclaimed to be the king of the Jews. What caused the crowd to go that direction? There are two things. One of them is factual and the other one is speculation. I'll give you the factual one first. Matthew says that the chief priests and the scribes got the crowd whipped up into demanding this. They convinced the crowd to ask for Barabbas. So apparently they were circulating amongst the crowd saying, no, no, Barabbas, Barabbas is our man, and getting the crowd on that side and probably leading the chant. Here's speculation. Some have suggested that Barabbas would have had some of his men among the crowd, the ones that he was involved in insurrection with. If it wasn't Barabbas and like two other guys that were involved in insurrection, likely Barabbas would have had some of his own men in the crowd that day. And in Mark, it says in Mark that it was the crowd that approached Pilate and demanded that Pilate observe this custom. So it was very likely some people in Barabbas' own party who wanted to see Barabbas released, 
They knew of this custom and they planned that day to take advantage of it. So they gathered in front of Pilate's praetorium and began to ask him, saying, release to us, as it is our custom, uh, one of these guilty prisoners. And as Pilate came out and offered to them Jesus, the chief priest got the crowd to chant instead Barabbas and handed Barabbas over to be crucified, or handed Barabbas over to the crowd instead of Jesus and handed Jesus over to be crucified. In Mark 15, it says that the man that... uh, the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking to do as they, he had done and been accustomed to do for them. Now, who is Barabbas? John says he's a robber. Now, he's not just a petty thief who wandered down the streets of Jerusalem and snatched purses off of the shoulders of little old ladies down on First Avenue. That's not the type of thief that Barabbas was. Matthew says Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. Notorious. Mark and Luke say that he was guilty of leading and being involved in an insurrection and committing murder in conjunction with the insurrection. So Barabbas was a thief, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. He was notorious that he was in prison and everybody knew Barabbas has finally been caught. Now, we don't know anything about Barabbas other than what is recorded to us in the pages of Scripture, but he was notorious and everybody in his day would have known of who Barabbas was and what Barabbas had done. And this exchange, the Jews handing over Jesus and taking Barabbas instead, this increased their guilt for what they did that day. And in fact, in Acts chapter 3, Peter, after Pentecost, indicted the crowd for this very activity. In in Acts chapter 3, Luke writes, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when He had decided to release Him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That's an indictment on the crowd. Some of those same people that Peter preached to a few weeks after Pentecost, some of those same people were in the crowd this day demanding that they release Barabbas and that they crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are a number of tragic ironies involved here. A number of them. Let me give you three of them. The first pertains to Barabbas and his name and what it means. This is somewhat ironic. The name Barabbas is a compound of two uh, Greek words. Bar, meaning son of, as in Bartholomew, or Barnabas, the son of Barnabas is the son of encouragement. Bar, meaning son of, and Abba, meaning what? You familiar with that word? Abba, father. So what does Barabbas' name mean? The son of the father. Now here's the irony. They handed over the one who is the divine son of the father, and they asked for one who is in name only the son of the father. In exchange. That's somewhat ironic. They were asking to have the Son of the Father crucified. And they asked for the Son of the Father to be handed back over to them. And that was Barabbas. There's a second irony in John chapter 18, verse 40, when he refers to Barabbas as a robber. That's not the first time that John has used that word. In fact, Jesus used that word in John chapter 10 when he was giving the Good Shepherd discourse. And in John 10:1, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief. And a robber. John 10, verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is contrasting Himself, the Good Shepherd, who gives life to His sheep and gives them life more abundantly, with all the thieves and robbers who come to kill, steal, and to destroy. And in John chapter 10, there's that gracious offer of salvation. Come to Me, the One who is the Good Shepherd, and I will do for you what thieves and robbers cannot and never would ever do. That is to give you life and give it more abundantly. Thieves come to steal, kill, and to destroy I have come to give you life. 
I'm the good shepherd. They are the robbers. And now John says that the crowd asked for what? The robber. They handed over the good shepherd and demanded instead a robber. Somebody who was guilty of killing and stealing and destroying. That's what they wanted. Not the good shepherd who could give them life. But instead, the one who would kill, steal, and destroy. Then there is a third irony. And it is this. And this is the one that is is most brash and bold. Barabbas was actually guilty of insurrection. Did you notice that? They handed Jesus over to Pilate and said, this man proclaims himself to be a king and discourages us from paying taxes to Caesar. He is guilty of fomenting rebellion and insurrection. Deal with him. Crucify him. He is a threat and a danger to Rome. And now when it comes time to, to release one of the prisoners, whom do they ask for? One who is an insurrectionist and a thief and a robber and a murderer. One who has actually fomented rebellion against Rome. One who has actually led and been involved in an insurrection. Jesus was accused of that. Barabbas was guilty of that. And they gave over one that they knew was innocent in exchange for one who actually had committed the very crimes that they feigned concern over. Barabbas. That's a tragic irony. This whole thing, everything that we've seen here in these three verses, this whole thing, from one perspective, is a travesty of justice unlike anything else you could ever possibly see. That a guilty man would be released and would go free while an innocent man was punished in his place. A travesty of justice, is it not? From one perspective, it is. But from another perspective, isn't that the very heart of the gospel itself? That the guilty go free while an innocent man is punished in their place? That's the gospel. Christian, you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. We are the guilty ones who get to walk free because an innocent man was punished in our place. Not unwillingly, but quite willingly. A voluntary, substitutionary atonement. He is the substitute. This, this is substitutionary atonement. That God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That God put up an innocent man and that this innocent man willingly went to the slaughter to be our Passover lamb and to bear the wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve to bear it in our stead, in our place, so that you and I, guilty thieves, guilty murderers, guilty blasphemers, guilty God-haters can walk free and be innocent. And not only that, but we can stand in the courtroom of God and not only be viewed as innocent, but be viewed as righteous because He was innocent and perfect. And all of my sin is put on Him and all of His righteousness is given to me. I'm not only forgiven, but I'm righteous in God's sight. This is the great exchange over which all of Scripture was written. This is the core of redemptive history. That the guilty go free and that the innocent is punished in their place. That's the gospel. Travesty, tragedy of justice or travesty of justice on display here? From one perspective, it is. But from another perspective, it is actually the vindication of divine justice. How is it that God can be just and yet justify and declare innocent guilty sinners? How can God do that? God does not turn a blind eye to justice. He will not pervert eternal justice just to let guilty sinners go free. He must see to it that sin is punished. And He has done that on the Lord Jesus Christ. So He bore our sin in His own body on the tree, Peter says. He bore our sin on the cross. Why? So that we can go free. That's a great exchange. You're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. Guilty? Yes, we're guilty. And we recognize we're guilty. And it's in recognizing we're guilty. That's the first step to going free, to recognize that I'm guilty, and then to repent and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian, this is good news for us. An innocent man was punished in the place of the guilty. And Barabbas is a picture, an illustration of that very thing. 
If you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation and you've never repented of your sin, I'm here to tell you that even right now, this very moment, you sit under the wrath of God. And if you were to die before you leave this place today, you would be eternally punished for the sin that you have committed against Him. And justly and righteously so. And God will not turn His eye away from justice. He will not pervert justice for your sake to let you go free. He will see to it that justice is done. Either because you will be punished for your sins for all of eternity, which you have committed against Him, or because your sins have been punished in the Lord Jesus Christ and He died in your stead. If you are a guilty sinner and you need eternal life, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Admit your guilt. Turn from your sin. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and He will forgive your sin. He will grant you everlasting life. He will adopt you into His family and He will give you a new heart, new, new mind, new affections, new desires and forgiveness and righteousness and an eternal inheritance. All of that is yours because an innocent man was punished in the stead of the guilty people. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, what a wonderful picture this is of the Gospel and the grace that You have shown through Your Son to those who are Yours. Thank You again for this reminder that our salvation and our righteousness before You is not due to our own selves, our own abilities, or anything that we have done, but due entirely and solely to what Christ has done on our behalf. Thank You for our salvation. Thank You for the righteousness that You've given to us. And we pray for any who are here who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, that You would quicken their hearts and open their eyes and help them to see their need for salvation and grant them grace and repentance that they would turn from their sin to You, the everlasting and true God, and confess and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are all the riches and the fullness of deity and bodily form, and in whom and through whom we receive eternal life and life everlasting, life abundant. We thank You for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.